I, I hate doing this, but my, my first line today will be, prepare to be disappointed. Um, this is, the, you know, Job's a tough book, and it's 42 chapters long, and a lot of times when I do Job, I'll do it like all in one lecture, um, and that's nice because then you get to tie up all the loose ends at the end. Well, that's not how we're doing Job uh, this year, what we're, or this summer, what we're doing is we're taking Job just a little bit at a time. And today's part is disappointing. Um, it will have a lot of loose ends that are left at it, and uh, it will be weeks uh, before you get your final exams, and we'll get to you know write out your essay questions um, and be able to uh, to solve all of the dilemmas of Job. Because as as we all know, that's what we're going to do uh, in Job. Right? Is it may be that. Thousands of interpreters have gone before and been unsuccessful in their attempts to finally square the circle of Job, but we together will fix that this summer. Um, so, um, but, uh, uh, so I, with that in mind, uh, let us dive into um, the, uh, the book of Job. What we're talking about today is God and the Satan. God and the Satan. One day the heavenly beings came to appear before the Lord and the Satan also came. And so uh, let's talk a little bit, a little bit. Let's talk for the next 40 minutes um, about uh, this, uh, this idea of Satan. When it comes to uh, dealing with Satan, we are caught in such a terrible dilemma. Um, on the one hand, Satan is virtually non-existent in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I will, uh, I'll explain a, a good bit of this as we go along, but the, Satan only occurs three times uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, we have uh, Job 1 and 2, which we'll look at today. We have uh, Zechariah chapter 3, a passage I know is near and dear to your hearts. Uh, probably, you know, it's in those pages in the minor prophets that are still stuck together in your Bibles there, and you try to, you know, get through them, and you're looking at the table of contents, and third hesitations or something like that. Um, the... Um, uh, that's uh, the second passage. And then uh, another familiar favorite, First Chronicles 21. Um, I know probably many of you had your quiet time today uh, in First Chronicles uh, there. That's it. Those are the only three places where the word Satan comes up in the Hebrew Bible. And yet, Satan is everywhere when you get to the New Testament. Uh, whether it's Satan or the devil, you, you can't swing a cat without hitting Satan, seemingly. When you, in fact, I was surprised when I started doing some searches to find out uh, how often it occurs, how often references to Satan and the devil come up in the New Testament. So how do we explain that sort of you know, difference between those? Where is it um, that the New Testament gets its material uh, on Satan? And, and this actually raises a second issue, which thankfully I don't have to solve today. And that is, so how are we supposed to think about uh, who Satan is? is? Is Satan a real figure? Is this a personification of something, you know, or whatever? And see, I didn't, I didn't give an answer. So you can't get on to me uh, for uh, saying the wrong thing. Um, but uh, it's, it is a difficult question, uh, which uh, mercifully I won't have to fix today. We, oh boy, we already got a question. <laughs> uh, you know, so that's, it's so fascinating there. And yet, if you read Genesis 3 carefully, it's a snake. In fact, it, if you read the passage, you can tell what one of the issues is, is that how do you have a snake that talks, right? And, well, and the text realizes this is a problem. And so it says, now the serpent was more crafty 
than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And so it's explaining, well, this is how you have a talking snake. You wouldn't have that explanation if that author were thinking, well, I mean, this is just, a, this is just Satan. Um, you, you wouldn't think if this were just Satan, well, then why would we need to know whether the serpent was more crafty? than any of the other beasts of the field that God had made. The serpent's just one of the animals that God has made there. Now, there's no question that eventually New Testament authors are going to kind of look back and they'll, that serpent of old and so forth. But it's fascinating in the Hebrew Bible itself. They just don't do that. Um, they, they just think of it as the serpent uh, who's there. You know, Tom, when I give you the $20 before class to, <laughs> to do my segues for things, I'm very specific about when I want the segue to happen. My notes about monotheism are like four pages from now. So 10 of it needs to come back. I'll hold it, you know, for next week to see if you can do better. We will, in fact, have to deal with the topic of monotheism uh, today. So... All right, so let's go here. Um, so where does the New Testament start to get this idea of, uh, of, of a more robust uh, Satanology, uh, if, if you like? Well, at the, at the very end of the Hebrew Bible, and especially in the intertestamental period, there is an increasingly prominent role for intermediaries, sort of like what you were talking about, these intermediaries, these uh, heavenly beings that are there. And, and the question becomes, well, why do we have these intermediaries? And there, there are two interrelated issues here. So the, the one issue is this. The first problem that we're having to deal with is that God is becoming increasingly remote in Israel's way of thinking. Now, remote sounds kind of negative. But if you think about remote as a, a kind of, you know, a parallel to exalted, that God is becoming so exalted that he's becoming increasingly remote, that's one issue that you have there. And so you need something that's kind of in between God and us as God becomes more exalted, more remote. The second issue that we're having to struggle with is we're struggling with the issue of God and evil and putting those two things together. And so that's where intermediaries can come in. I'm going to struggle over that word the entire time today. So if I mispronounce intermediaries, just pretend that I said it correctly. Um, so uh, we, if we have intermediaries, they can also kind of help us with the problem of evil. So, so how is it that we get ourselves into this problem? Well, the issue is that over time, Israel's view of God becomes more and more elevated more and more exalted. If you go back to the earliest you know, period of Israel's history, they would not technically be monotheists. They would be a, a different term that we would call henotheists. And what henotheism believes is that, well, there are lots of gods out there, but there's just this God for us. And that would be similar to what some of the nations around Israel thought, is that, um, you know, they would, they would have the whole pantheon of gods, but then they would say, but now this one is our God here. 
And Israel has this notion here. And in fact, at the very beginning, you probably wouldn't even think that Israel necessarily thought that their God was the highest of all the gods. That there was just, you know, this is the God whose team that we're on. Now the next step that we get to, probably we have very few echoes of that first stage in the Bible, but when we get to uh, some of our early texts, they would be saying that there are lots of gods out there, but our God is the highest of them. I'll read you a few passages of Scripture. This is Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Well, it's not denying that those other gods are out there. It's just saying our God is superior to those gods. Or uh, this is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32. It says, praise, O heavens, his people. Worship him, all you gods. And so it's saying that these other gods ought to give deference to the God of Israel. This is Deuteronomy 33. There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help, majestic through the skies. He subdues the ancient gods. All of these, and I mean literally, we could come up with hundreds of passages where you have this kind of language there, where there are other gods. God is a, it says he's the king of gods and so forth. So in these early passages, you have this notion there are multiple gods that are out there, but our God's the highest of those gods. Now, that's not where we're going to end up, though. As we keep thinking about this issue of, of the nature of God, that eventually we'll come to the idea, no, there really is just one God. One of the pivotal moments for this is actually with Elijah. So Elijah, we, we, when he enters onto the scene, there had been this kind of idea that, okay, yeah, there's other gods that are out there, but our God's the highest, until Jezebel comes in. And what Jezebel wants to do is get rid of the worship of Jehovah and just have the worship of Baal. And so here comes Elijah. I mean, the very next paragraph after Ahab marries Jezebel is the introduction of Elijah. Elijah's name, El means God, the I in the middle means my, and the J at the end means Jehovah. My God is Jehovah is this guy's name. Who knows if that's really even his name? It might be like a nickname because he's telling you this is what my ministry is. <laughs> oh yeah, you're going to worship Baal? I, I got your Baal right here. My God is Jehovah uh, is this guy's name. And Baal's the God of the thunderstorm. What's Elijah's first act? No more rain until I say so. And so he's emasculating Baal. He's saying Baal's no God at all. This goes on for three and a half years with no rain. Now those of you who went to Israel with me, when we first started off and we're down in the desert and you're thinking three and a half years with no rain, who would notice? Has it rained in three and a half years, you know, down in this place? But when we get up to the north, well, it rains as much as it does in Birmingham. And so three and a half years with no rain, I have trees that are dying in my yard to this day because we had about a two-month drought three or four years ago. Samford lost a hundred trees because of the drought that was there. I think it may have been more than a hundred, actually. Well, imagine three and a half years of no rain. That's what we're talking about. Finally, there's that contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And think carefully about the line that Elijah uses to introduce it. He says, if Baal is God, serve him. But if Jehovah is God, serve him. Do you see what's implicit in that statement? It's not if Baal is stronger or Jehovah is stronger. It's if Baal is God or if Jehovah is God. In other words, there's only one God. It might be Baal, it might be Jehovah, but it can't be both. That's a turning point 
in Israel's religion. And from that point, they move steadily into this idea of strict monotheism. In fact, by the time they arrive at the end of the exile, this is the way Isaiah 45 puts it. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That's not the language of Exodus 15. You know, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? There are no other gods, Isaiah would say there. So that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So once we've arrived at that point of strict monotheism, well, that's where we start to, to run into a couple of issues. And one of the issues that you get is God becomes so exalted that you start to struggle with the notion of how do you relate to such a God? How do you have a relationship with that sort of God? Think about the difference in the two creation stories that we have. So the, the first creation story, Genesis 1, is the, the newer one. The older one is Genesis 2 and chapter 3. You can almost imagine relating to the God of Genesis 2. The God of Genesis 2, I, I made a list. He plants a garden. He makes the man out of dirt. He breathes into his nose. He puts the man in the garden. He brings the animals to him. He puts the man to sleep. He takes one of his ribs. He fashions the woman. He presents the woman to the man. This is a very earthy presentation of God. You could imagine walking in the cool of the day with that God. What about the God of Genesis 1? The God of Genesis 1 who just speaks and creation flies to obey his will. A God who, well, I mean, in my mind, a God who made billions of galaxies, each containing billions of stars over the course of 14 billion years. Do I really think that that God is concerned when this morning I couldn't get my email to mail to my iPad the PDF of my notes. I was about to lose my religion over this and I began to want to pray. And does, does the God who superintends the creation of sextillions worth of stars care about my PDF? See, that's, that's a hard, it's a kind of difficult dilemma, isn't it? You know, the, the God who shows up at Abraham's tent and eats a meal and discusses the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God I can relate to. But the, the God of Isaiah 45, that's a harder God to relate to. Well, that, that's one issue we have. So then there's the second issue, and that is, where's the bad stuff come from? Now, as long as you've got multiple gods out there, it's not a, a real problem. There's a battle among gods, and so if the Assyrians attack with their god, God comes in to defend as, as uh, Israel's god. But if there's just one god, well, then how does that work? It, it doesn't work anymore. Now, there is one strategy that you could take, and you could just say, let God take responsibility for everything. Isaiah 45 actually does that. We'll talk about a troubling passage. Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form light and create darkness. If you have read that bestseller, Creation Rediscovered by Jeffrey M. Leonard, it's a fantastic book. As I've mentioned before, I'm slowly moving up. I used to make my joke that I had moved to, you know, just past the 1973 Gremlin Repair Model uh, Manual. I, I'm up, I'm, I'm passing the Pinto uh, Models uh, Repair Manuals now. So look out, uh, you know, uh, Dan Brown, I'm coming. Um, the, uh, 
Uh, if, if, you, uh, if you were to look at that, you'd know that, that light is good, but darkness is bad in the Hebrew Bible. I form light and create darkness. Now, this is the way the New Revised Standard puts it. I make weal and create woe. That's awfully poetic. Except that what it says is, I make shalom, peace, and I create ra. Ra is the word in the Hebrew Bible for evil. Now, I think probably if we're, if we're, we're not contrasting ra with tov, tov is the word for good, so it probably doesn't mean evil in a kind of metaphysical sense. Probably does mean the opposite of peace, opposite of shalom, which is calamity or chaos or something like that. But either way, that's a tough verse. You see something good? I did it. You see something bad? Don't look anywhere else. It's me. I'm the one who did it. Now, that fits great in Islamic theology, where you just have this, it is written. God's responsible for everything, but it's not really the way that we think about God, is it? See, they're running into the difficulty of where, where does the bad stuff come from if there's just one God and that God is powerful? So the, the solution to both of these problems, the solution, a, an attempt at a solution uh, to, to these sorts of issues, and whether it's attempted as a solution or not, it's, it's the way that people started to think, was there's an increasing role for intermediaries for God that helps to kind of soften the blows of both of these problems. So how does it, it uh, help with the, uh, the idea of the remote God? Well, if you, if you think about uh, intermediaries in the New Testament, you know, it's interesting how little interaction you have with God the Father in the New Testament. That, that what you get instead is you have a, a great deal of interaction with intermediaries, like, for example, angels. And so um, angels do the Annunciation to Mary and to Joseph. Uh, angels appear to Zechariah concerning the birth of uh, John the Baptist. It's angels who appear at the Nativity to announce Jesus' birth. Angels come and comfort Jesus in the wilderness during the temptation. An angel comforts Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's angels who appear at the tomb. It's angels who appear after the um, ascension of Jesus. Angels occur all over the place. It's not God the Father who shows up and does these things. Instead, what you have are angels that are there. Think about how prominent a place that intermediaries play in Catholic theology. So if you think about Catholic theology, there is a great deal of, you know, I can't wait because next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, we are leaving to go to Italy, a place that it is absolutely scandalous that I have never been before because I love ancient history and I'm an absolute fanatic for art. My poor wife, I mean, she will be sitting in Jesus' lap when we get to heaven. Uh, I will spend countless, you know, amount of time in purgatory uh, while she is just up there swimming in the heavenly pool and, and so forth uh, because of all of the museums that I have had to drag her through. And it will be even worse for her starting next Sunday because I will just, I will be walking around mouth agape looking at all of this artwork while she goes, deliver me, Lord. It's, it's going to be, a, it'll be fun for me. Um, but you see some of those paintings, and you know, there's, there's God, remote and, and way, way off and, and up in the heavens and so forth. And what do you see more of? You see more of Jesus and Mary and angels and the saints. God is so remote that you have those intermediaries there because it's hard to relate to God 
But you can re relate to Jesus, you could relate to Mary, you could relate to the saints and so forth. Even Jesus, to some degree, if, even if you're non-Catholic, is an intermediary. Jesus becomes flesh so that we can see what the Father is like, right? Um, John 5, 37, the Father who sent me has testified on, me, on my behalf. You have never seen his voice or seen his form. In other words, the Father, you, you don't see him, you see me. John uh, 6, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father, in other words, himself is what he's talking about there. And so as we have this very elevated notion of God, there's an increasing role for intermediaries. It started with just the priests, but eventually the priests weren't enough because God keeps getting higher and higher. I'm going to need the other 10 because you're, you're still like a page ahead. Um, you know, I, I never could figure out how Anna was always ahead of things on the trip. Now, it's, it's so obvious that, Ivy, you're the reason. Um, it's, <laughs> the, <laughs> the Persians absolutely are going to be one of the issues uh, that we have to do. In fact, that Isaiah 45 passage is written in some respects in relationship to the Persians. Um, because uh, the, the Persians had the idea that Marduk had been displaced. Uh, that was the god of the Babylonians. And so Cyrus the Great says, Oh, Marduk has called me to come in and restore him to his rightful place. That's why I'm taking over Babylon. I, I have no interest in it myself. I'm just here to serve Marduk. And Isaiah, the second Isaiah, Isaiah 40 uh, and following, will say, Oh, no, no, no. Cyrus, I'm the one who called you. And I didn't call you so you could put Marduk back in his place. I called you so you could set my people free, um, is the idea. I call you though you do not name me. I open to you uh, the doors, the, the, the treasures of darkness I give to you. Um, and so it, it is definitely written with the Persians in mind. And especially related to this next issue, which is the problem of evil. So how do we deal with the bad stuff? Well, intermediaries can come to play a role. There's no question that the New Testament attributes to Satan a role in this idea of where the bad stuff comes from. This is John 12 again, and we don't have to deal just with John on these passages, obviously. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Talking about Satan. John 14, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Talking about Satan. He has no power over me, Jesus says. The ruler of this world has been condemned in John 16. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That's the way Paul puts it there. And so you can see how to some degree what they're doing is they're offloading to Satan this role of evil that is there. All right, so where does that come from? Uh, they, granted we have this problem, well, how is it that we eventually arrive at this place where we're putting in these intermediaries? It didn't start with the New Testament. It started with the intertestamental period, is what we would say. So from the close of the Hebrew Bible to the beginning of the New Testament, there's this greatly expanded role for intermediaries there. And there's this studied attempt to sort of put onto the intermediaries the problem of evil. 
And so uh, there's a, a couple of different books that do this. Actually, there's a lot of books that do it. Two of the most famous would be what we call First Enoch, and another one's called Jubilees. Some of you probably heard those words before, uh, First Enoch and Jubilees. Um, the First Enoch will describe how angels fall. And some of them fall because of, uh, they become sexually attracted to humans, and so they have sex with them, and giants are the result. Some of them fall because it's a more sort of Promethean kind of idea, that they give the arts of civilization to humans, but the result is warfare and violence, and so they end up being uh, condemned. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, Noah. Um, that I, I went, the Russell Crowe movie Noah, I, I, I went into that movie prepared to be disappointed because the Bible has a perfectly good story of the flood and I just knew they were going to depart from it in all kinds of ways and as I watched it I thought, oh, it's, it's worse than I thought. It's just terrible. And the, the problem is, as I started to pay attention to it, almost every place where they depart from the biblical story, they're filling in gaps from intertestamental literature. And so if you've seen it, like the rock monsters of everything, and you're going, I feel confident if there were rock monsters in the Bible, I would have noticed that. It's there from First Enoch. Um, it's these fallen angels that are there. Um, I, I hate to spoil the whole movie for you, uh, but um, if you get to the very end, you know, Russell Crowe, who's Noah, he's got this dilemma because he's preparing to, uh, to throw his, his twin grandchildren over the side of the ark and kill them. And you're going... I don't, I read that story. I mean, I saw it when I was like in the nursery. They had the little, you know, the paintings of it. What a bizarre thing for a nursery, right? You know, hey, it's the destruction of all the world. Let's, let's decorate the nursery with that. Um, but, you know, it's, but, you know, it's like, I, I feel like I would have seen that. And at the last minute, he can't do it. And, and the reason is because it actually is directly related to what we're talking about here. How do you cast God as a character? in the story. You can't. So what they did was they cast Russell Crowe in the role of God. And what Russell Crowe's dilemma is, is the same dilemma that the flood has. What would it take to get rid of evil? You got to get rid of all the humans. But God just can't do it. He loves humanity too much. And so he says, you know, human beings are evil from their youth up, but I'm still not going to destroy them. And this is Russell Crowe's dilemma. Only way for us to get rid of the problem of sin is to get rid of all of the humans, but I just can't do it. And so he saves them instead. What, what, what the uh, director was doing in that moment was letting Russell Crowe as Noah play the role of God in there. It's a fascinating way that he did it. I don't have time for this. Um, besides, Tom in a second is going to be on my, the, my next page of my notes, and I'll be behind again. Um, in the book of Jubilees, you have the same thing, the, the angels fall that are there. The other thing that they need is they, they start to come up with this idea of a leader of the fallen angels. And it's, it's got a weird name. His name is Mastema. And actually, Mastema is from the same root as the word for Satan. The, in Mastema, the S-T-M it's just a by form of the S-T-N in the word Satan that's there. Um, and so the Mastema becomes kind of the leader of the fallen angels. And uh, if you read Jubilees, there's a fascinating place where uh, it's the fallen angels that uh, provoke the flood. And after the flood, Noah knows that if these fallen angels are still around then um, you know, they're going to continue to stir up trouble. So he please to God, you know, God, please get rid of these and so forth. And God's willing to get rid of 90% of them. 
but the remaining 10% of there, and they continue to kind of wreak havoc uh, on humanity from that point forward. One of the things that the mastema does is it kind of, they, they start to offload onto the mastema all of the, uh, the things that we're a little bit uncomfortable with in the Bible. So for example, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. Instead of it being God who commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, it's the mastema who persuades uh, Abraham to do this. And so you can kind of, you know, push to the side uh, God in a few of these passages. So th this is where this kind of stuff starts up in the intertestamental period, except it doesn't completely start up just in the intertestamental period. They are finding purchase for some of these things at the end of the Hebrew Bible itself. And so one of the things that's quite interesting is if you move over time, the nature of angels changes in the Hebrew Bible. In some respects, probably related to the Persians uh, that are there. Daniel is the latest book in the Hebrew Bible. So in other words, it's got stories that are in the Babylonian exile, but it's not written down until the time of the Maccabeans. So it's way down. It's only, you know, 165 years before the New Testament. Uh, well, before Jesus, I would say. Um, listen to this passage from Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, it says, I looked up, I saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold. His body was like beryl, his face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. So he's describing an angel here. And it says that, that Daniel had begun praying, had begun praying, and it took three weeks for this angel to show up. Well, what was it that delayed him? It says, uh, the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. So Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Michael, the archangel, archangel, is fighting against some other angel who is on Persia's team. And this angel comes and meets with Daniel and leaves the battle to Michael over there. Y'all, that's not how we think about angels earlier in the Bible. Earlier in the Bible, the, the angels, they're just like messengers who show up on God's behalf, uh, now I must return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I am through with him, the prince of Greece. And so we're starting to think about these angels in a different kind of way, uh, a way that does have a little bit more of that connection with these intermediaries that, you know, God's somewhere in the background. Well, what's happening? Well, the, this spiritual warfare that's happening is happening among the angels who are there. Uh, that's when we get, uh, for example, Daniel 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince, comes and does this. And so we get more of these angels here. Well, what about this idea of fallen angels? Well, they dig back into the Hebrew Bible for that as well. Things like Genesis 6. When the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, they took wives for themselves. Now, in his original context, that's actually talking about Cain's line and Abel's line. But you're going to get lots of people say, well, that's far too boring. This is angels intermarrying with humans and then producing giants as the result. Or what about Isaiah 14? How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. 
I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Siphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. We may as well be reading Milton here, right? Um, is that this is this description, well, this is obviously Satan who's trying to climb up and take over God's place, but he gets cast down. Well, not in its original context. Its original context, it's a, it's a dirge, a, a fake dirge, over the king of Babylon, who conquered nations and now has been cast down himself. Or you might have Ezekiel 28, you were in Eden, and you tried to rise up, and I cast you down here. And so this is the kind of place where people are finding purchase for the fall of Satan to be the leader of these angels who have fallen as well. So how does all this relate to the passages in the Hebrew Bible that actually mention Satan? One of them seems to connect with it. So I mentioned there were three passages in the Hebrew Bible that mention Satan. So uh, one's going to be Job 1 and 2, the other one's Zechariah 3. The third one is 1 Chronicles 21. And it sounds suspiciously like this mustema idea that I mentioned. In uh, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 24, you have a really odd line. It says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David to take a census. That's a strange line. God's angry at Israel, and so he incites David to take a census, and then he's mad at David when he does. God, I don't understand. Well, neither did the chronicler. Because when the chronicler does this passage, listen to how the chronicler puts it. Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. You see what the, the chronicler's done is something that seems troubling for God to have done. He's pawned off on Satan instead. You can start to see where they get some of these ideas about, you know, sort of subdividing uh, the, uh, the responsibility for the administration of the universe over... Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. I... <laughs> really, I mean, um, the, uh, so, But you can start to get that. The thing is, though, the other two references to Satan really don't have this role at all. It's, they, they don't connect, really, in any respect with this later idea of Satan that is there. What does the Satan do in these other two passages? Now, you're going to love this. He plays the devil's advocate. I, I, there's no better term for it. That's what he does. Now, originally, of course, you know, the, the devil's advocate is just slang for uh, the person whose role it was to raise questions about a candidate for sainthood. And so they were the one who was supposed to take the opposite view and raise the, the strongest case you could against the canonization of someone. It was their job. They're really called the protector of the faith. But what they did was they, they were the devil's advocate there. And this was supposed to be a good role because what you were doing was said, don't, don't end up doing something that you shouldn't. Let me play devil's advocate here. Would that we had more people playing devil's advocate sometimes um, and saying, have you thought about and, you know, considering issues more fully. So in Zechariah 3, they're, they're going to make this guy named Joshua the high priest. And the Satan objects and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He was in the exile. He's tainted. And God speaks back to him and says, on the contrary, he's like a brand that I plucked out of the fire. He's just fine. 
take off his dirty clothes and put on clean clothes. He's going to be fine. You see what the, the role the Satan is playing is there's a debate in the community. Should this guy be the high priest, the Satan's job is to raise objections. And God's job is to answer those objections, which is exactly the role that the Satan plays. He's the one that says, oh, yeah? Well, have you thought about when God says something? Job chapter 1 says this, One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them. So what exactly are these heavenly beings that are there? The word is B'nai Elohim, the sons of the gods. And usually when you have that expression, the, the sons of means belonging to the category of. So when you say the son of man, what you mean is a human, a mortal. When you say bar mitzvah, a son of the commandments, or a bat mitzvah, it means that you're now subject to the commandments is the idea. Somehow, these are these quasi-divine beings that are there. I don't want to mess with you too much, but when I say quasi-divine beings, some of you go, well, no, they're not. They're angels. What exactly is the difference between an angel and a quasi-divine being? You really thought about that? That, you know, if you think about like the, the demigods, if you're in Greek mythology and stuff like that, well, we don't have those. We have angels. What exactly is the difference between those two. I don't have a good answer for that. We just, we use one term for one and one term for the other. Or maybe we don't if we have B'nai Elohim here. Um, so Satan also comes. Is he one of those or is he separate? Scholars have debated that, you know, scholars and interpreters for a long time. The Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down. I have to confess, that doesn't really sound like the conversation between two mortal enemies, does it? I, I mean, even, even like Goldfinger and Bond have more tension in their conversation than, than Satan and, and God do here. The Lord said to the Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Why does God ask that question? The Satan answered the Lord, Well, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. This is maybe the most difficult question in the book. Does Job fear God for nothing? The word there in Hebrew is the word chinam. It just means for nothing or, for, for, uh, or vain or that kind of thing. Does Job really serve God? For nothing? See, if what Satan's doing here is he's kind of changing the paradigm. See, the paradigm has always been if you obey God, you get blessed. Well, well Satan is flipping it around and saying, well, maybe it's that he's gotten blessed and that's why he's obeying God. The paradigm has been that if you disobey God, you get cursed. Well, maybe you could flip that on its head. And if he gets cursed, he'll disobey Maybe Job is blessing you because you've blessed Job. If you curse Job, maybe Job will curse you. Does Job serve God for nothing? Do you or I serve God for nothing? But that's a far more difficult question 
then you know, or God didn't do it, or whatever. But the the part about why we serve God, well, that just gets right into your cornflakes. There, it's like I don't know if I want to think about that or not. Job's a troubling book. The Lord said to the Satan, "Very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him." So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now we could pawn this off on Satan. But we know who's really responsible here. God is responsible in this text. So the scene happens that the, the, all the various things happen to Job's uh, family, to his servants, to his animals, and so forth. But Job remains faithful. And so we get a repeat of that scene all over again. The heavenly beings come. Satan comes too. The Lord says to him, uh, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him, it's the same word, hinam, for nothing. But that's troubling. This is a presentation of God where God can be incited to destroy the family of one of his most beloved creatures here for nothing. Just because he's been goaded into it by the Satan? Can God really be goaded? See, I told you reading this as a parable is more helpful than reading this as history. If this is straight history, this is absolutely disastrous. But a parable is a thought experiment. And as a thought experiment, boy, this one makes you think. Is that really the way that God acts? Robert Frost has a paraphrase of this line from Job where he says, It was very human of you, but I expected more. God's actions here do seem awfully human rather than awfully divine. Satan insists if you attack Job, he'll curse. So Jehovah allows him to curse him. And this time it's his health that he takes away, and so he's struggling from the, the crown of his head to the sole of his foot and remains there languishing. So what are the issues that the Satan is there to uncover for us? First of all, God seems to be so easily manipulated. His line sounds almost like, why'd you make me do that? Which is not the sort of line that we expect from God. The second is, why does God raise that question about Job at all? Does he need like some kind of reassurance that Job really is faithful to him? It's a, it's a difficult question. Does God need validation here? If we read this as history, uh, my, my students will often say, well, God is always just. And so uh, all Job has to do is remain faithful. And he did, and he got restored in the end. And I will invariably respond, okay, now read the story from somebody's perspective other than Job's. Try it, for example, as one of Job's kids. You know, it didn't work out for them in the long run. Job gets restored at the end if you just, you know, persist in your integrity long enough. But, you know, there were ten kids that were involved. Not to mention servants and animals and so forth. It is not a story that easily squares the circle of justice, cursed at the beginning, restored at the end, and we're all good. Because not all of the disasters that happened at the beginning are uncovered at the end or resolved at the end. You can see why ancient interpreters quickly went away from the way the book of Job is really written. The Testament of Job that I mentioned last week removes God almost entirely. 
And so the book is not so much about a struggle between God and Satan or between uh, Job and God. It's a struggle between Job and Satan. And Job ends up coming out better. If you look at these, uh, if, you, if you read Ballantine's book, these little Byzantine miniatures where they are illustrating the text, Satan becomes increasingly monstrous. God recedes into the background and the battle becomes Job versus Satan again because it's one that we can handle there. It's like the Mastema. It's not God who attacks. It's the Satan who attacks in that case. Some of the later interpretations of the book, things like, uh, you know, Dr. Faustus, uh, if you read the famous uh, work by Goethe there, Job underlies so much that's there. Uh, Faust, Dr. Faustus is not as innocent as Job by any means, but it's interesting that Goethe does sort of the same thing as these earlier interpretations. God gets removed to the background because I, I guess he finds him uninteresting. It's the Mastema, it's Satan, it's Mephistopheles, who moves to the fore. And what's so fascinating is, is that instead of trying to undermine faith with suffering, because that doesn't always work, he tries to undermine faith with pleasure instead. And that does end up working. What is more difficult to survive? A time of suffering or a life of constant ease and pleasure? That's a fascinating kind of observation in that respect. I want to return, though, to what I think is the most difficult question that the Satan answers. And I have fully 60 seconds to tie all of this up here. I think it's the part that troubles me the most when I let the lens of Job shine on me. And it's making me question my motives about why I actually serve God. I'm not sure that I serve God for nothing. And the reason I say that is because I believe in the afterlife. The afterlife is a statement of faith about the justice of God, that all of the, all of the squares are not uh, circled in this lifetime, so it must be that God is going to do so in the life to come. It makes one wonder, how do you serve God if there's no afterlife? And if you take it a step further and say there's not only no afterlife, but no guarantee, of any justice in this life, would you still serve God? I think of a couple of scenes from movies. There's a, a movie called The Last Samurai, where um, the uh, 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 Watanabe's character there, uh, he, if, he tells the emperor that if the emperor wants his life, he need only ask for it. I'd do that for my kids. I don't think I would do that for my king. There's a scene in the movie, London Has Fallen, where uh, one of the planes throws itself into a missile to save the president's helicopter. Boy, it would take a lot. I might do that if I were in Band of Brothers and I had grown attached to these comrades and felt like I owed them my life. For a king, I have questions. Why is it that we serve God? Do we serve God purely for nothing? Or isn't there an element of what am I going to get out of this that's there? Here's how I started my review of Ballantine's book. Perhaps it should not be surprising that the biblical book whose language is most difficult is the book 
for which our language of description falls most miserably short. Job is a complex book, to be sure, but it is much more than that. It is a haunting book. It is an unsettling book, a book that teeters between shoring up faith and stripping faith away. Most of all, it's an irresistible book. As Samuel Ballantyne confesses in the preface to this outstanding volume, once you fully enter it, you can never fully escape. Wow. I told you, prepare to be disappointed. I can't fix it today. We'll keep diving into Job for weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Job. Job, I don't understand it. <laughs> What a tough book. God, I can only pray that you draw us closer to you to give us a bit of insight into you as we wrestle with these hard topics. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.